Three, two, one. Well, I think I used songwriting and still do as, as a kind of sounding board for ideas or philosophies. For example, the line, um, if you are not very careful, your possessions will possess you. Will possess you, you know, yeah. That like, for some people that's like, whoa, she's anti-capitalist and like, maybe I am, but I still like nice things. I can't hold myself to account in that way when I am using songwriting as a vehicle to challenge my my own perspective in life and to explore my own perspectives. I loved pop culture, I really loved it. And the idea that music could spread some kind of message that would benefit others or, or open up their brains was so appealing to me. Marina Diamond is also known as Marina, and previously known as Marina and the Diamonds, is a Welsh Greek political pop star. She's an incredible songwriter with a voice that stops you in your tracks and at least stops me in my tracks. It's only after you get past the need to dance to her music that you realize in almost every one of her songs, she's giving you a very important message. I've been listening to Marina's music since high school, keeping lyrics like, if you are not very careful, your possessions will possess you as daily mantras. She just released her fifth studio album, Ancient Dreams in a Modern Land, and has come back with evolved messages and music you will not be able to sit still to. Disclosure, this is a fangirl interview. Marina has been such an inspiration to me for many, many years, and I cannot wait for you all to enjoy this guided storytelling session. Thank you for your patience and your, and your t-shirt still processing. I love yeah. that. Our first episode of this season of the podcast was with Jenna Wortham, and she has a New York Times podcast called Still Processing. Oh. Yeah, cool. it's really awesome. Her and her best friend, Wesley, talk about different things happening in culture, like music and movies and movements and stuff, and it's all about processing it. So I saw that, and I was just like, oh, this comes full circle, because we just had her on. Yeah, I think, I mean, myself in particular, but... Um... I think we all need more time to process. I feel like modern, you know, modern life and the internet have kind of taken away a bit of that from us. So, and I'm extra slow processor. <laughs> I've heard you say that before. And I wanted to actually ask you to clarify if that means that you just take more time doing research or you feel like it takes more time for something to just stick into your brain because I think now with the internet in general, for instance, I'll watch TikToks because I learned so much from TikTok, but then I will realize that I will completely forget what I watched because I just scrolled past it. So I didn't let my mind process anything. Yeah. And then I'm trying to figure out if we are just so accustomed to information happening so fast that we keep it very, very surface level in our brains. Or if mm. maybe you have hacked a way to be more intentional with absorbing information. Yeah, I, th I think it is potentially that, but only because uh, that's like on a cognitive level, that's what I need. I think I'm, I am like a s slow and deeper thinker and... I'm also introverted, as we've discussed before, you and mm -hmm. I. Um, <laughs> and I think introverts usually do need a bit more downtime to take in the amount of events that are happening. For example, right now, I'm promoting an album and 
it's almost like I keep telling myself in two weeks time you can sit down and process everything like I just have to get on with it every day and and you do feel less a lot less grounded well now doing like more virtual events versus in-person events is that bit easier or harder because of just not being able to feed off of the same amount of energy that you were able to to sustain yourself when it's in person Mm. I think it's just been different I don't I don't know if it's been easier or harder because there's difficulties on both ends but I do really miss the lightness of variety the variety variety brings you know meeting people and actually seeing people face to face when you're being interviewed and obviously interaction with fans that gives me a lot of energy so sometimes it does feel a bit drudgy because it just feels like I'm um on email all the time at an office which I know a lot of people (laughs) you know have to do as well but I'm just I'm not accustomed to it I've spent 12 years of my life doing you know all sorts and traveling very intentionally not doing that yeah intentionally not doing that (laughs) yeah because I just don't you know I don't want to offend anyone like it's not that office um working in office is bad but I'm just so unaccustomed to it that it's been quite hard for me to adjust to that type of um day-to-day life where it's like nine to five um, yeah. And, you know, I miss seeing people for sure. Well, how is your heart doing these days? My heart? You know what? My heart's pretty full, Nor. It's pretty full. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's um, taken on board a lot in the past year. But I'm feeling like I feel very grounded in my life in L.A., even though my work life is a bit hectic at the moment. And that's a really nice feeling to have because... I've realized that pre-pandemic, I haven't had like a full year at home since I was 22. (laughs) And I was 35. And are you so grateful for that? Making your, just having this place worth it because you can actually spend time in it? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm grateful for realizing what I was lacking, you know, for me, the biggest thing is intimate friendships. I've always had, you know, great friends over the years, but you can't maintain or create a type of day-to-day intimacy when you travel a lot for your work. It's very difficult. Right. Unless unless your closest friends or people you've grown up with and you've already got that shorthand there, you know? Yeah. I think it's interesting to hear you say all of this because... You have always spoken about and talked about and sung about nonconformity. And now the entire world is in a position where we have to not conform and we have to pivot our lives and and being given that test and, and trying to really put our feet to the fire and see if we really act on the things that we've said or we really act on the things that we have believed for so long. How have any of your beliefs around nonconformity changed during this time? Mm, That's such a great um, statement that you just made because, you know, saying you're going to do something or putting it in an Instagram caption or, you know, aiming for it, which is a very noble thing, is very different to actually putting it into reality. Um, And I feel for myself, what have I done that with this year? I mean, honestly, I think I think deepening friendships, you know, that's something that I have really wanted to work on for a long time. I really started to crave particularly female friendships in the past 
three or four years and only because I realized that like the way that I had lived is not how everyone else lives or relates to people I think artists don't really talk about this much because it's you know it's kind of a weird thing to say oh I, I didn't have like deep friendships for so many years but but it's hard you know, though when it, you're on the road it's extremely hard it's ex- it's extremely hard even if you have good intentions it's like you're always going to feel slightly slightly kind of isolated when you get back and you know you pick up pick back up with friends and then you might have you know a period of nine months where you're home and then you you leave again um but I think a lot of artists experience this, but I don't really hear anyone talk about it. It's more like they either employ their friends to be on their payroll and that be in their team. Right. <laughs> which is yeah, fine. That's so works true. for some people. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's something that I've really put a lot of effort into and and it's made me really happy. And it's really made me commit to not having that the previous type of life I had again. I do not want to travel, you know for even half the year. Wow. Not doing it anymore. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out where I'm at with the travel. And I keep thinking about friendships lately too for the same reason. So I started traveling and being on the road maybe when I was about 17, 18 years old. And I had this group of friends that I was close to. And then when I started traveling, I stopped getting invited to things. And I remember one of the friends had a birthday weekend in New York and it happened to be when I was in town and I was really upset and I was like why didn't you guys invite me and they were like well we just figured you were going to be traveling like they just stopped inviting me to things and I was thinking about it earlier actually probably this week too maybe my frustration and me being upset was valid and also I probably could have done more because I was so engulfed in the things that I was doing yeah but maybe now I also realize that The friendships itself in that moment in time was pretty surface level. There weren't things that I could really take with me. It was kind of like a spending time in person thing for some of them, not all of them. And so it's been a weird year for friendships for sure. I've been asking people a lot. Have there been any friendships that you've had to grieve this past year? Like, are there any conversations that you may have had to hash out where you're just like, okay, cool. I either have to set boundaries with this person or this just isn't a friendship that sustains me anymore. Have you had to go through that at all? Not in the pandemic, but certainly uh, I would say, I think it was about four or five years ago. And it was my first experience doing that. And it's so tremendously difficult. This is, again, another thing that isn't really discussed that much publicly, like how hard it is to, to admit that perhaps you're not on the same wavelength anymore or that their actions don't make you feel good, but that, you, you know, you still care for them. It's just you can't continue to um fake uh you know a, a friendship or a relationship I, I feel like it's even more difficult with friendships than romantic relationships to do that it, there's like a different yeah I didn't realize it would be yeah it's it's really awful and it ate me up for months because you know looking back at these like I think it was three people I had to do this with or have a conversation with over a number of years. And they'd been in my life a long time. And even now I think of them and I'm like, you know, I think fondly of them, but they were, I had no boundaries at the time. I was like, open, <laughs> I say book, <laughs> everyone come in, say whatever you want to me, you know, I'll request whatever you want. 
act or behave however you want. And that's not how good friendships function. That's not how healthy friendships function. And actually, mm. I'm not sure looking back if a few of those people were, were like true friends. Because when I was going through things, they, they weren't aware of that. And you have to really... Do you realize now that when you were going through things, like you would intentionally or subconsciously not talk about it with them because you would think... That's just not something I would talk to that person with, but you're realizing that's not something I would talk about with that person with because I know that I know that they're not gonna any good. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't faultless because I think I at the time I had a tendency to just not rely on anyone except for my partner, my romantic partner. Romantic partner sounds so kind of (laughs) my romantic. But you know what I mean, my My boyfriend at the time. Um, Yeah, and wait, I definitely relate to that. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, you're you know you're a lot younger than me, and you're so wise. So Thanks. it's great Thank to be you. talking about this. Um, I'm wise because I, I learned also... from you too. I learned so <laughs> much from you. I'm going to share a little story because me and a friend of mine from high school, we were such like rebellious spirits that your music was kind of our anthem. And I remember specifically the line of. TV taught me how to feel. Now real life oh. has no appeal. Yeah. Okay. And I wanted to be on television and I wanted to be in television. And because of that line, I always told myself I would provide something on television that was worth people's time and make them and mm. actually like, teach them. And then you DM'd me on Twitter, which I probably haven't deleted my Twitter account because of this interaction, but you DM'd me <laughs> telling me that you had listened to Sold in America on the plane, and I think I maybe peed my pants a little bit because it was <laughs> such a full circle moment because it was almost a moment where, not that you owe anyone anything ever, but for me, it was like, oh, you really are that person. I mean, it would just make sense that you would relate to that or vibe with that. And you were giving these messages out in a time where being like what you saw on television was cool. And now I think everything is changing because everybody's trying to find their own individuality. But yeah. conforming was actually something that was seen as good, whether it be in school or your workplace or your family or whatever it was. And so I feel like you taught a lot of young people about that while you were going through your own thing. And yeah. did you believe everything you were saying at the time? Or were you trying to get to that point? Well, I think I used songwriting and still do as, as a kind of sounding board for ideas or philosophies so it's not like you know when for example the line um if you are not very careful your possessions will possess you possess you You know yeah that like for some people that's like whoa she's anti-capitalist and like maybe I am but I still like nice things (laughs) of course (laughs) yeah you know I can't hold myself to account in that way when I am using songwriting as a vehicle to challenge my my own perspective in life and to explore my own perspectives. Do you ever feel a responsibility to be the character who is singing and believe those things? Because of course your album, Electra Heart, you were this character that you curated, which Mm. must be really fun. But do you ever feel people are going to believe the things that you say as yourself? So maybe you have to align with that or are you completely open with challenging your thoughts and putting things out there knowing that your mind might change? Mm. I I think there is a I would be lying if I was like yes it's the latter I think there's a small a small part of me that occasionally 
wishes not to be misunderstood. But for some reason on this next record that I'm going to put out, because it is quite opinionated and like political, I've just come to terms with, or I'm more at peace with the idea that people may misunderstand me. But I think I've always kind of been misunderstood. That's why I've been in between the cracks in a way. And that's not a negative thing. It's just that's that's been my path. And I think that happens when you're not someone, when you're someone who goes against the grain and when you're someone who isn't conforming. Where in your personal life did you get that type of inspiration? Was there somebody in your family or in your surrounding or did you just come to the conclusion that you could see through things? <laughs> um, I would credit my dad with that, actually. Yeah, he's, um, he's been a really instrumental in my role or in my path as an artist. I don't even know if I would have become an artist if I hadn't had him to like push against, to be honest. Um, but you know, in a positive way, he really inspired me to question everything. Like he, he didn't let us eat McDonald's when we were growing up. He hated pop music, hated me listening to Britney Spears. Um, you know, it was very, a very strict father actually, but the flip side of that is that I became very analytical of what I was consuming and why I wanted, for example, a sweater with Gucci on it on the front. Like, why do I want, why do I want the logo? He'd be like... (laughs) He'd be like, why are you wearing other people's names? You should wear your own name. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so funny that you say that. Adam told me one time that every time he would wear a logo piece, his dad would be like, why are you giving that brand free advertisement? And I never thought about it that way. We're walking billboards. Hang on, who said that? Your dad? No, Adam's dad. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, that's the school of thought that my dad I think still has and well we're also talking about your dad is Greek and I feel like this sounds like something my Libyan dad would do and Adam's dad is Moroccan so it kind of maybe is this relationship test that first gen kids have where their Mm. parents who grew up in a different culture than us especially in America, being surrounded just by consumerism. Even that group of friends that I was telling you about, I remember feeling really bad when I didn't have a Blackberry because my mom wouldn't get me a Blackberry and I had a Razor phone and so everybody was doing BBM and they were talking about all the drama and I was like, I don't want the drama. I just want the option to have the drama. But like, but now looking back, I mean, I'm very happy that I had my books I guess yeah that's so cute do you know what I think you've touched on something there as well with gen gen z or gen z however you say it um is that I noticed in I've noticed for a long time in dialogue with my fans they don't get it if I wear the same outfit twice they're like why is she wearing the same skirt three times and I'm like because I like it (laughs) they don't but now cost per wear is something people are actually taking into factor now it's trendy but like at the time you know I think that signified um some kind of lack of cultural um some lack of currency and for Mm. me you know I haven't changed because I'm like I don't want a huge wardrobe and I feel like ethically it's wrong for me to just spend all my money on bags and clothes because that's that's how I feel I'm not saying it's bad for other people do what you want with your money um but I don't want to chuck a dress away after wearing it one time. Like that's, 
kind of sinful. And I also feel the same dialogue with um, with phones. Like my fans used to be so obsessed. Like if I had like the older older model of a phone, they'd be like, get a new phone. Like what's wrong with you? But I haven't <laughs> been brought up like that. Like my dad, you know, grew up in extreme poverty and lifted himself out of that situation. And it's not, for me, my family cultural values are not bye, bye, bye chuck 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 away you know it's it's valuing things and you know valuing handmade things my gran was a seamstress so it is difficult to bring those ideas into like a very fresh new like pop world where you're expected to be the opposite did you consider yourself pop from the beginning because your music of course sounded pop but your lyrics did not and Mm. I feel like even when I was listening to you, people had a hard time categorizing you for better or for worse. I think that's a fun thing. But yeah. how did you personally identify your music? Um, when I got signed, and actually, I guess up until my first record was out, I didn't think of myself as pop, but I had, I had pop, populist ambitions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, loved, I loved pop culture. I really loved it. And... The idea that music could spread some kind of message that would benefit others or or open up their brains was so appealing to me. So that was kind of my aim. But, you know, I certainly wasn't sounding like a pop star when I got signed. How did you come to your sound? Because now, sometimes even when we hear artists like Lord or like Lady Gaga, these people who you have to just stop and listen to. When I first started listening to those artists, I was like, this is like Marina, which I know it's not great to compare people and whatever, (laughs) but the sound and the feeling I would get, it was like something that I would get excited because I felt like you were the first artist that I heard with that sound. How Mm. did you come to that? Was it because you didn't have the more formal training of music or was it something that you, I don't know, created yourself? Yeah, I think it potentially is because I didn't have training but also because I didn't play any um, musical instrument except for very simple keys and so I was trying to use my voice as as a different type of instrument and yeah and also because I was so new to songwriting there were like no rules for me you know I was just totally writing from my heart and that I just I even remember like the first time I sat down wrote a song at 20 and I I was just filled with what I would describe as like God. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like something much bigger than you is is um is embodying you or like tapping into you and it's just the most wonderful feeling ever. It's like gold, you know, it just feels like gold. And I knew from then on that was gonna be my life path. That I should be a writer, a songwriter. It is a divine thing. I write poetry and I write just I write and I actually wrote my first song in Italy a couple of weeks ago for fun. I'm not doing anything with it, but I was like, this is oh, cool. Why did this come to me? When you keep yourself an open vessel, things that come to you are from something bigger than you. And what an amazing opportunity it is to be a vessel, a chosen vessel where you choose to do it and something chooses you to do it and you're able to give people a gift from that. Yeah, it's wild. It's very wild. Particularly because I was just acting purely on faith that this tiny inner voice that had been saying you you should be a singer since I was 15, it was really onto something like nothing pointed towards me doing this. I didn't, 
you know, I didn't, I know my voice is unique, but I didn't have a good voice at the time. It was so unstable and I couldn't even sing live for years properly. But it's just, it's funny how when we like put ultimate faith in our, in our tiny inner voices that, you know, we get very interesting outcomes. Mm. I think that inner voice is God. So I'm like, I always keep my ears open for that. And I feel like it's easier to get through God than it is to get through your parents sometimes. So when you knew that this is what you wanted to do, how did you bring it up to your dad? Mm. (laughs) I love how it's to my dad, not my mom. (laughs) (laughs) It always is. Um, He had, I had told him, I think before I left, um, what is it called? High school. And he'd said, yeah, that's fine if you want to be a singer, but you have to study first. You have to get a degree. And I remember just not really saying anything. And then when, then when the time came after I got my A-level results, I decided, nah, I'm not going to take my place at university. <laughs> and I think my parents both worried for a while, but my mum was uh, more open to me trying this. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a total punt, as they say. It was a total risk in a way. But for me, it was like there was nothing else that I could do. It was like this is the only option. Yeah, mm. and you got signed within four years of starting this mm-hmm. field, which is, I feel like, in this space, pretty quickly. So were you quote ready, or if someone could be ready, what does that even look like? Mm. Uh, I think ready. Ready for me meant that I'd had enough time to experiment with my new craft and that I had found an identity in music. Um, But for me, the key was to start producing my own demos. That's when labels actually became interested. And you also went through the path of the original social media MySpace, which I feel like MySpace was always a music platform before anything because I found so many cool new artists from that website. Do you remember when you decided that you were going to use the internet to build your community? Yeah, I mean, Lily Allen was already doing it very well. Kate Nash, you know, the artists who I felt some kind of affinity with and that was just the way that we were putting music out at that point. And it, it was so new, actually. It was only probably around for three years before I kind of launched. So, yeah, there was no decision. It was just like, that's the way that people put music out. <laughs> so I'll do that. And once you did get signed, you have a lyric about the day that you got signed or the day that you signed a contract and your feelings being a little bit off what were your actual feelings of that day (laughs) no I love your diplomacy a little bit off (laughs) (laughs) I'm not putting words in your mouth yeah um I I think at the time I felt off because um I think I had depression but it was never diagnosed and so I was very numb all the time even on exciting days like that but maybe it was just because I was trying so so long, so hard and so long to get signed that when it actually happened, after like four months of negotiating, it was like, ah, 
Um, but yeah, mm. I think I, I felt, I mean, this was a theme in that first album as well. I felt very disconnected with myself. I wasn't anywhere near a conscious being, you know, well, not until fruit, until my late 20s, did I feel like I had any feeling of consciousness. Wow. That's a really big thing to experience while doing something like that for the first time. Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. I have been working on pitching something and really wanting this thing that I want to work on so badly for Mm. so long. And in my head, I'm so used to getting no. It's self-sabotaging where I'll say, I'm going to do this pitch because I know this is what I have to do, but the response is going to say no. So I'm already like telling myself that so I don't feel hurt. And then Mm. last week in our second pitch meeting with this one company that is a dream to work with, they were like, yeah, let's do it. We would love to do this. And I just, I was shocked. (laughs) But I also felt that numbness where I was just like, okay, there's a Mac Miller line that Adam and I always quote, which is, it isn't your money until you make it. Otherwise, it's just a conversation. And I'm, I always like keep that in mind because I'm like, this doesn't mean anything until it's True. all done because I yeah. had my heart broken in this space so many times. How do you enjoy things? How do you celebrate small wins even if they won't last as wins? Mm. I mean, just to relate to what you just said, I- I think that's so understandable if you ha- you're like, it's a self-preservation exercise that your brain's doing. You don't want to hope yet yeah. until it's happened. But then it's like when the good thing does happen, you've done so much protecting yourself that like, what's the point? Yeah, like, do you feel it? I think taking it down to the everyday level really helps. Like, it's Ooh. great to have big ambitions and like, I'm a, I'm a big dreamer and a big thinker, but... I think the more time goes on, the more I realize that actual like long-term happiness is more down to the everyday stuff. It's not about the the big Mm. things. Like, I don't know, that could be in my instance, like selling X amount on, you know, of seats on tour or yeah. For another artist might be awards or whatever. Um, It's so hard though, to rewire your brain to think that way because when you're so easily triggered by not selling out the show and not being able to appreciate everyone who did show up. That's something that I would experience. And I remember one time I showed up to an event in Missouri and one of my coworkers came because she's from Missouri. And so I was really excited to have her come. And it was like 10 people who showed up and I was so embarrassed. And the event coordinator was like, oh, I'm so sorry. We totally forgot to promote this event. And I was like, oh And I was so shocked and hurt. I couldn't even ask people who are sitting in the back to move up. I always tell myself now I should have just scrapped the entire talk and just done like a little round circle and just like yes. had this intimate thing so that it was more memorable. But I was yeah. so embarrassed about the whole situation. And it was really hard for me to even recognize the people who did show up somehow. It's so I don't hard. know what that rewiring so does. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, those moments are just difficult, particularly when you're at the beginning of your career. I had a similar thing where I was doing a gig in Aberdeen and seven people showed up. And it, and it was the same reason. Oh, Lucky seven people. Putting even one poster up. <laughs> um, and it was, and I couldn't stop thinking the entire gig that only seven people were there. Because it's, it is strange, but I think, I don't know what the answer is. Like, if that happened now, I... I would probably be doing something more similar to what you just said to as in like acknowledging that there are only seven people there <laughs> but you make know. them feel special make it feel like wow I'm really happy that we have this small circle that all of us can hang out and be together this is a really rare thing and I don't know turn it into a positive but we're so stuck on your standard expectation of success which is like that selling out which is making sure that you're exclusive and your merch is sold out and your tickets are sold out and that it's extremely hard to get to you. And how could it be that seven people can see you and like you can actually have more than three minutes of a conversation with them? That doesn't sound yes. like our typical success. That's, no, I think you really nailed something. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot recently. What our cultural um, values of, of success are versus what our personal ones are. That's something that, you know, I've kind of been talking about for a long time, but I didn't have the words to articulate it. And I think you've ju totally just like nailed it. I think um, we need to really get rid of these actually quite capitalist ideas of, of what success is. They're so boring to me now. So boring. And actually, you know, for me, one thing that used to annoy me with some of my um, very lovely sweet fans is that they all say I'm underrated. And at first it's like, that's cute. But then after 10 years, you're like, but I'm not. Like, how big do you want me to be? <laughs> wow. You know, I sell like 100,000 tickets on tour. Like, that's massive. And, and I think it's because they compare me with other artists that they also value. But I'm not meant to be that. Otherwise, I would be right now. And that's taken me so long to unpick. It's like, it no longer frustrates me. I like thank them for, for like saying things like this because it makes me question like, what, what does it mean to me? You know, do mm. I feel underrated? No, not at all. I'm, I'm like living my wildest dreams. I've got complete artistic freedom and I'm on a major record label. Like that is effing rare. It is and you're so lucky because you're in a position where no one is asking you to change yourself or change your lyrics or change your image because you serve the intention that you have always served. Can you explain a little bit about your situation at your record label because you are signed to like an indie division that allows you that creative freedom. So how is that different from your typical big pop contract? Well, it doesn't differ hugely but I was, I was signed to a subsidiary label originally in the UK that was on Warner Records. It was called 679. And then that folded, well, folded. The, the person who ran it had run it for so long, he just didn't want to do it anymore. So he, he got out of the major label system. And then I was on just pure record, major record label for a while. Yeah. And now I'm with Neon Gold. So the function of Neon Gold really is... Like they, I've known them for so long that they facilitate and understand my ideas. So it's like a bridge between the record label communication wise. Um, so I, I am still on a major label. I'm not like an, in, an indie artist, but I've had incredible 
um, like trust and freedom creatively, which honestly, being on record five now, it's like, cool, we're here. Like, I think yeah. both me and the label are like, wow, we're like, <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Um, and I think I've, that's happened because I really fought for it. After Electra High, I realized I love pop, but you know, if I'm gonna have to make it that way, I don't think it's for me, it's not sustainable. And so I started writing on my own. Um, and from then on, I think they realized, oh, she has like a very loyal, high engagement fan base and we can trust that she can do what she wants and she's still a viable business partner. Mm. So it's proving that to them really. It's such a unique story because I have a lot of different friends who are either starting out in music or they're in the music space right now. And one of my closest friends, Betta Lemmy, who is also one of my favorite artists and a huge, huge fan of yours, I asked her to submit a question for you because of the struggles that she's been having. So I'm going to read her question that we can talk about because I know this is something Absolutely. a lot of people go through. And her question from Betta is, how did you cope with music labels not embracing you for who you are? Did you ever encounter moments where the music or the body of work you wanted to release was refused? And if so, how did you separate dealing that with everyday life? And I know you have a unique situation, but I'd love to know how you would advise artists who are in that space. Mm. I have a semi-experience of that on Fruit, actually. I'd written the whole record. I'd like almost produced all of it. And basically my label wouldn't give me the budget for mixing it. They just sat on it for like four months. And I had no fear that it wasn't gonna be released or anything like that, but I was so frustrated and so ready to go. I was like, fine, I'll pay for it. And I paid for my photo shoots. Do you remember the fruit ones with like the peaches? And yes, it's like yes. one of my best photo shoots. You paid for that? Yeah. I was like, I'm not sitting here waiting for you guys to like believe in me. So we did the photo shoot <laughs> and then we sent them the photos and they were like, oh, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> wow. And thanks Atlantic UK, by the way, for trusting me because <laughs> I'd come from Electra Heart and they, I think they were still confused. This is the thing. When you're an artist who moves about a lot, I think people you know, it's very hard for business partners to get a grasp of who you are. But like, that's part of my creativity is exploring. And growing. And, yeah, and so to, to answer your friend's question, I think, um, oh God, those moments, they, they really are so, um, they're deeply soul destroying, particularly if you have a situation where the label just will not release your music. Well, she's also, I think, is going to be a pop icon. And she also makes very intentional music and might be in situations where that's not the music that they want to release. I think, I mean, honestly, if, if a label ever tried that with me, I would just release it online. And then if it gets traction, you can see that, you and they can see that, okay, this is a direction that's worth following. And if it doesn't, then you haven't lost anything. Mm. That's a great idea. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's rebellious advice, but I, I know what artists are like and they just want to get their music out there. So I think if I really was being, um, if, I, if I was kind of in that position where they were forcing me to yeah. sit on it, then I think I'd release it myself for free. 
I feel like some of your music sounds like it always just felt untouched. Obviously, I know that things don't happen that way behind the scenes, but it still always sounded just like you. And it confuses me almost when bigger corporations, labels, whatever it is, don't want you to show up as yourself because one, it's like, didn't you sign me for my individuality and to bring you the value that I know I can bring? It's almost like you're stunting someone's growth. How does stunting anyone's growth ever benefit you? I feel the same way that I had the last corporate job that I was at where you come and you show up as yourself and you have that freedom. But then when you like expand too much or you grow too much, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I want you to be in this box, not this box. And you're checking yeah. this off for me. And so let me try to hold you back. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is with, with labels is the nature of the relationship is really not understood, especially when you're a new artist. The, you mm. know, basically, to start off with the dynamic, you know, you have no idea whether they're like the boss or you're the the boss or you know which should you be leading with ideas should they be and you're kind of in a, pos- a vulnerable vulnerable position because you are looking to trust in someone that you're partnering with financially but the thing is I, I also think if you're a very individual type of artist you should wise up about how you see the record label you know you can have people you work with there who you love dearly Atlantic US, who I'm now signed to, have people I've worked with for 10 years there and they know me so well. They're great team members, but the, the relationship isn't a romantic one. It's a business partnership. And therefore, mm. if you are the creative, you have to lead with the ideas and that helps them as well. You know, it's not their job to be the artist. Um, so in terms of being signed for individuality yeah that's great and and I did get signed for that but at the same time it's like the stock exchange you know they're like (laughs) they're like buying stocks in you and and that say they sign 10 artists there are only going to be a certain number of those that succeed so they're weighing up risks and it's way less risky if they uh, have an artist who goes the more commercial route and that's Mm. that's this whole predicament with your friend and with Plenty of other artists that I know, um, and it's no, you know, there's no hate towards labels there. It's just, I like to see things realistically. First of all, that makes a lot of sense, and thank you. I love business hat, Marina. This is amazing. Yeah, I love business. <laughs> <laughs> no, How I did really you do. not take the business personally, though? Well, I did. I really did. I mean, Fruit was, you know, pre to it coming out, Fruit was so upsetting. I was like, why do they not believe in me? Um, now I don't take it personally because I figured out what the essence of the relationship is and should be. And I think for them, after Fruit, they realized, oh, we don't need Marina to be a radio artist because she has a extremely rich touring career and her fans are extremely supportive and they're long-term fans. You know, they stick around. They're not here for a new sound. They're here for the lyrics and, you know, how her own experiences resonate with theirs. And so I think now it's very different for me. Um, And that's just a wonderful thing. But, you know, it took me a long time to get there. So artists who are listening right now who are in a similar position, like, you shouldn't be hard on yourselves because it's a lot to learn, particularly in your 20s. What is it that you love so much about business now? Because I feel like you like came up with this perfect formula for your career. You have this perfect community. 
you get to do the work that you want to and you like are smart enough to know what's best for you business wise just like it I like being a boss <laughs> and I like and I like designing things as well it's I wish I could do 10 jobs <laughs> I love designing merch you know I love coming up with ideas but essentially I am entrepreneurial and my role as an artist is just so perfect for that because it allows me to express those different sides of myself um but again you know I'm saying this as someone who's 35 now it's taken me a long time to acquire this knowledge well if you were not an artist if you had a different job in the music industry what would it be and if it was outside the music industry what would it be Mm, easy in music industry I would (laughs) be (laughs) I would be a creative director for sure you are a creative director yeah I am but I would be obviously for other artists (laughs) is that not allowed do I have to come up with another one (laughs) no okay okay it's okay it's okay okay so a creative director for other artists and then outside of the industry and then outside of the industry I think it would be something to do with psychology. I don't know if I would be a straight up therapist, but I think um, I could definitely do something with with marketing. I used to really be fascinated with adverts when I was young, like from the age of nine, I'd look at all the billboards and try and understand like, what are they trying to make you feel or want? <laughs> That's probably from my Sorry. dad as well. Wait, Adam is what? smirking at me right now because Adam has a really interesting relationship with billboards. He gets really mad <laughs> when he can't read the text on the billboard and then he critiques the entire billboard and then re-envisions the entire billboard. And then if he sees a billboard that he enjoys, he really enjoys it. Because He also studied marketing, so that's probably why. Because I'm like, you guys are so weird. <laughs> it's just a billboard. <laughs> I love it, Amazing. Though. Yeah, we are marketing, marketing brains. If you could have a billboard made for this upcoming album and its tour what would it be? Oh my God, no. You have to come up with it on the spot right oh, now. Put me on the freaking, I would, I would just put um, what I've already tweeted, you are not here to conform full stop in massive um, capital letters. <laughs> it would be big enough and for you I, to see Adam. Yeah, that, cause that intrigues people. Suddenly they're in. <laughs> I would be in, that would be, it. yeah. I wonder if you could yeah. put a QR code. Do people put QR codes on billboards? Could you just like oh, tap that would it? Be you'd so have... good. That would be really smart because then you would do it and then it would just go to your tour site. That's, if we could do, if iPhones could do that, that would be such a good idea. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You, and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at isyfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. Wait, are you touring? I'm saying all of this stuff and I didn't even ask you if you're touring this year. 
yeah, I am touring in Feb 2022. Woohoo! Winter the tour. Tour is on sale. Um, winter, yeah, winterish, and then it goes into summer as well. So different, nice. different continents. Yeah. Do you have a favorite place you go back to, or favorite venue you look forward to going to? Oh god, that's hard. I mean, honestly, I'm desperate to go to South America again. Desperate because I had like such a wild time last time and the fandom there is amazing it is and I I think that's why I want to because you know I've only ever like been there once I've never been to Mexico I'd love to go there um well if you get to show in Mexico I would go with you I would love to go oh would you 100% okay great (laughs) I'm there let's do it I've been wanting to find a reason to go yeah okay I'll let you know favorite venue Favorite venue, the Greek in LA. Oh, that's classic. It's so beautiful. beautiful. Open air, you can see the moon, the mountains. It's just gorgeous. It literally is like a painting. Yeah, it is. It's like 70s LA vibes. I want to know more about your relationship with LA because, Mm. and I'm going to quote another lyric because who else can I do this for? Hollywood, obviously, classic song. Yeah. and rebellious song and you don't live in Hollywood but you are in LA so what was your image of LA when you first got there and how has it evolved my image of it was touristic for sure I felt the first time I went to LA I was 20 and I I turned up on like on Hollywood Boulevard and I was just I'd come from like. Did people really think that you were Catherine Zeta? Like, did they think that you were at the airports? Some like smart security guy was like, You look just like Catherine Zeta. And Shakira. Shakira. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but my general impression of it, you know, was as as other people's is, which is, oh, it's superficial, it's ugly, it's urban. Um, I don't understand it and I just feel totally disconnected. But, you know, I was staying in touristic spots. It took me eight years to realize that LA was just this incredible, you know, natural haven, you know, outside of its urban territories. And um, and it's just like so multicultural, so many cultures there, cuisines. Yeah. I just, I, don't, I love it. I can't really explain why I suddenly in my 30s, I had a roaring desire to live here, but I Really? Because a lot of people say New York in your 20s, LA in your 30s. Yeah, they do say that. I mean, a lot of my friends live here now as well, so um, You have that. the beach. There really is you nothing have... more to it. And the weather. Yeah, yeah the beach, the, the hikes. Oh, I don't know. It's just been my favorite city to ever, ever live in. And that's why you're there now. And that is why I'm here. Yeah. It's the inner voice thing again as well. It's like little voice inside saying I should move to LA. And that was four years ago. So it took me a bit of, took me two years to act on that. Where were you before? Uh, London. And I lived there for 15 years. That's right. Would you ever move back to London? I can never see it for myself. I think I could see myself living in the UK still, but I think I'd, I'd live in the countryside somewhere. I, I'm like looking forward to going back to London as a tourist now. It's, you know, stay Ooh. in a fancy hotel, <laughs> be able to see my friends there. Um, but I think you know, 15 years is a long time, and yeah, I was I was ready for something new. 
Do you feel like LA now and just being in nature now has helped? Because you're not in the city proper. Yeah, I'm like slightly outside of it. I'm in like very natural area. Does that help at all with anxiety? <laughs> yeah, it does. It, yeah, I mean, even having any kind of outdoor life is really good for mental health generally. And What's your relationship been with mental health throughout coming into your own now? Mm, well, like the past year? The past 35 years. Jesus. <laughs> wow, it's been a wild ride. Therapy. <laughs> I've been hanging on with my fingernails. Um, you know what? It's... I read this thing about personality disorders once, which I don't have, I don't think. And um, I was doing an essay on it. And apparently they, um, they get less severe as, as the person grows older. They kind of like mellow. A bit. And I think it's the same with people who suffer from depression and anxiety. And I definitely feel better. Like I haven't, weirdly, you know, even though it's been a very stressful or just worrying year and a half, I haven't had an anxiety, um, like a panic attack for for almost a year and a half. So I'm definitely feeling better on that front. Yeah, thanks. I think it's just recognizing like, just admitting to yourself, yes, I have had depression and anxiety since, I don't know. I mean, I can remember when I was like seven and nine having very depressive thoughts. So I've been really in the dark or in, the, in denial about that for a long time. And I think the first step really for healing anything like that is acknowledging what you yeah. have been through and that it's not indulgent to feel that because the classic the classic um, comment in my brain was always, well, you know, it could be much worse. Other people have way worse things going on. And that just invalidates your own experience. Yeah. Brene Brown talks a lot about that. I forget the term that she uses, but one of the first podcast episodes that she released during COVID was about, I think, comparative suffering and Mm. just how that doesn't help any of us because it makes you feel worse about yourself because you're not giving your anxiety and your fears space to breathe. And then it doesn't really help anyone else. It's also this like incredible kind of narcissistic idea that we are responsible for every single problem. Like we have to do something about every single thing. You dilute your intentions and your service. My formula at least has always been combine your skill sets and your talents with causes that pain you the most at that time. And so Mm. if right now something that's painting me as misrepresentation of sub-communities in America. That's where I'm going to focus my energy. And then when everybody bombards you with, well, why aren't you talking about this? And why aren't you talking about this? And why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing this? You kind of have to just stay in your lane because it's a weird relationship to have with an internet community, especially because people don't want you to be performative, but also want you to be performative. And they hold you responsible for everything. So do you, because I've I've also... uh, I've seen posts like by Jamila that she also talks about that. And I just wondered, do you, because you're you know, it's so funny is she literally just texted me about that. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I love her. Um, I love you both. And you know, you're, you're both, you both serve a role um, in the internet community, you know, to, to educate and to um, stand up for minorities. And I, do always wonder you know what the burden of that is because suddenly people expect you to be the the broadcaster on everything it's like you're not a news channel you are you know your own person commenting on these things and trying to change things 
Well, even more so because as somebody who only wanted to ever be on a news channel and only ever wanted yeah. to tell stories that way, I learned within newsrooms that there was no proper way that you were going to be able to tell any of these stories and give them justice. Because if you're working to turn out a headline or to turn out a three minute package, it's impossible for you to be as intentional. Like one of the most important things for me when it comes to storytelling is spending time with the communities that I'm trying to serve and building trust with them so that they will be open enough to share or use whatever platform we have to share their own stories. And so it's impossible to do that when you're just trying to hit a beat every single hour. And to yeah. me, that just didn't feel right. Mm. I mean, for other people, yes, but I, I don't think I would find joy in that anymore because I don't personally feel like you're doing anything about it. Actually, you know, I'll read mm. you this meme that my publicist sent me. She was like, you should write about this. <laughs> Somebody tweeted, it wasn't a meme, it was a tweet. I legitimately believe that what the mainstream media has done to people over the past six months is an act of evil. They have broken millions of people's brains and severely damaged their emotional well-being and many will not recover. It's psychological terrorism. I and I was just like, that. it makes, to me, I think it's a mm. big statement, especially to use the term psychological terrorism. Yeah. I think that it's totally valid that we have literally damaged people's psyche more than helped them because the last 16 months are obviously COVID. And... Mm -hmm. We used fear mm. and terror to instill in people to make them comply and also divided people even more because now mm. we have people who don't believe in whatever. Yeah. Instead of use the opportunity to make this a community effort. And it's easy for people to be like, well, that just would never have happened. We're very selfish. Nobody's going to care about other people and want whatever. Mm. But to me, it's like, we also have never tried that. It just seemed like in a time of crisis, and a continuing time of crisis, we set ourselves up essentially through the media and through the stories that we were telling to have people react the way that they are with the vaccine right. and with the, everything that's happening. And it's not to justify the behavior or the yeah, repercussions of it. But I understand. Yeah. Is it, are you kind of like pointing also at the, the, the sheer tendency to write things that will enrage or inflame people? Totally. And also when you're on a 24 hour news cycle and yeah. you're regurgitating the same thing and people just have their televisions on all day because there's just breaking news all the time now. Like to me, the phrase breaking news is absurd because breaking news used to be when there was something that we needed to everybody drop everything and pay attention to. But now breaking news is anything. It's just any new information because that's how rare it is to present new information. Wow, I just realized that. Breaking news, yeah. I believe now, is just when we're presenting new information because we're constantly regurgitating. Yeah. And most mainstream news outlets right now are just commentary shows. They're not oh God, just giving you facts. It's it. so confusing to me because I'm like, whoa, I don't believe in objectivity in the traditional journalism sense, but I do believe we have a responsibility to give people space to think. We don't give people space to think and I don't believe that most people actually know what their real thoughts are about certain issues. I think that people are more confident in their issues because their first instinct is to go on Twitter and to see what other people they follow are saying and then they take that as Bible. Mm, yeah, I think that's true, particularly with Twitter. I mean, it's always like this just feels like a big gang mentality. That's what it's built for. 
and it's it's exploiting humans because we don't really even know you know if you're a 15 year old you don't have the same tools to like analyze that and know what's happening it's yeah. um yeah that's a very interesting tweet i feel really lucky to be in the position that i'm in now to have you know my own production company and, and essentially treat myself as a media outlet and at the same time that's only the case because it was nearly impossible and it's been nearly impossible for someone who looks like me or dresses like me to appear on national television regularly we have consistently heard that people are not ready for that and so we were like okay let's just do this on our own and it has been successful so far and also has taught me the value of having your community trust you as an individual than a huge corporation when people are like Mm. where do you get your news from like what do you watch because i just don't know Mm. anymore i'm like i'm not going to ever tell you to trust an entire corporation find individual people that you trust because it's so hard there are great people who are at the new york times jenna wortham i was just telling you about is at new york Mm. times magazine but i'm not going to judge her work based on the behavior of the entire corporate publication yeah absolutely i mean with that horrendous advert that yeah was taken out I mean because I just did a feature piece with them and I'm not gonna you know judge the writer or like the writer the art on that section because they have nothing to do with that they obviously whoever decided but we that know that okay because of the space off. we're in too yeah yeah exactly it's like they probably received a couple of mil to uh be able to justify printing an advert that was audacious and as damaging as that it, it would have to be like you know figure changing <laughs> for it their, had to be that profit section we canceled our subscription and i'm sure that we're not the only ones who did yeah. so yeah i'm always curious about what the actual like value exchange becomes how many people who were invested in something step away from that what is your relationship with media and how do you do it because i know for me i'm super weary of doing certain interviews and because every interview I've ever done has always been misrepresentative. So have mm. you ever experienced that? And how does your heart essentially feel when you're approached for something like this? I mean, I think it depends on the journalists. I usually, if it is for a big feature, I usually Google them, do research. And I've said no to people before just because I, they've had a habit of like twisting things or turning on people, making them look stupid, which has definitely happened to me. Um, Unfortunately, with the UK media, a little bit more than international. Mm. Um, they, they may have changed, but they used to have the music section anyway. used to have like a bit of a chip on their shoulders. Like, who is, she, who is she to like want these things or to like try these things out? And also on top of that, we've, we had like just misogyny back in yeah. 2010, 2011. But yeah, my relationship with media, it's not too triggery. I feel pretty much okay these days but um I don't know I'm also maybe this is a really healthy thing but there's just a detachment that goes on now it's like Mm. I don't really care anymore like for me what I do care about is is my fans liking a record and media can say whatever they want you know they're not there to they aren't actually there to like or dislike my record they're there to report on it and that's up to them if they want to misquote me, you know. Yeah. Anything to do with that. There's also that Venus Williams clip that was going around around the same time that Naomi Osaka pulled out of the French Open. She was being asked about her relationship with media, and she said, 
I know that the people who are asking me the questions will never be able to play as good as me and never will. Mm. And so it doesn't bother her as much because of that. And it kind of sounds like what you just said around the chip on your shoulder. Like it really doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make very much sense to me when the people who are the most critical are ones who have never even tried. It's kind of like what Brene Brown references with the Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. It's like if you're yes, in the arena. yeah getting beaten and putting everything out there anybody who's outside of that has no space to say anything well I think you have to be extremely um extremely self-protective with what you are deciding to consume and that's been something that I've only really put into action in the last two years you know I don't read my twitter mentions anymore um and this is going to be the first record that I don't read any album reviews. I've, all, I've just decided that. <laughs> when did you decide this? Um, about two weeks ago, because I was speaking to a UK journalist and they made some comments that were totally fine. They were just like, oh, you know, what do you think people are going to say about this line? Or, um, or like the song New America. And it just suddenly like brought back all of these awful feelings after the interview. And I just thought, I just don't know if I can go through that again. And also, this is where I'm at now. And I'm standing behind my work for once and for all. I'm not going to be shamed anymore for what I'm expressing. And also, they've never lived my life. They don't know my family. They don't know my upbringing. They don't know what I've been through, just as I don't know what they've been through. And so why would I take their words to heart? So I spoke about it with my manager and... um, he said he will send me the good reviews and or captions. <laughs> wow. Like if the, re- the whole review isn't good, he'll just send me a little quote. <laughs> and I Amazing. thought, that's cool. That's great. But the most important thing is that fans love it. And that's also something you can't guarantee, but it's something that I hope for and that I, I have a good feeling with on this record that they, they are resonating with it a lot. Yeah, you have a great way of creating timeless work that happens to be very relevant thank you thanks you're welcome surprise this is a review (laughs) (laughs) only a positive one though (laughs) only a positive one i'll say everything terrible after we stop recording great (laughs) i love it so i have some not so rapid rapid fire questions for you Mm -hmm. okay should i put a helmet on how fast are these they're going like 750 miles per hour. Okay, like the speed in which I speak is how fast they're going to be going. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. Um, that was my bad review on my own self. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who is your favorite pop icon and why? It's gotta be Madonna because she was brave. She was fearless, actually. And she challenged social norms at the time, particularly in relation with female sexuality that nobody else was talking about. Do you remember a moment in which you saw Madonna do something or release a song where you were like, whoa, I feel seen or I feel like I want to follow in her footsteps? (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I guess I was too young for the actual live releases, but I... I think it was her general, her aura, you know, her attitude. I loved Vogue. Um, I also loved later albums like I loved American Life so much. That inspired me a lot, actually. 
I have to listen to that in correlation when I listen to your new record and New America yeah. and just yeah. Do you remember vibe Everybody out. goes to Hollywood. So good. Yes, like but also I. Song. What if you covered her whole album? <gasps> or even like just a few songs. Like as a collaboration too. Oh. Just saying. Oh my God, Ray of Light. That was an incredible record too. Um, she's just got such a rich career and I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if we would ever like sit in the same room and, and like get on, but I, I appreciate her from afar and I love what she's given to the world via her music and her bravery. I don't doubt that you will be in the same room as her. <laughs> I <all>. hope so. <laughs> I really think so. But do you want to meet your heroes or no? I'm not too bothered, to be honest. Because now you understand that everyone's human because you know the same way that you wouldn't want people to think that about you. Yeah, and also I would only want it or crave it if I really thought that we were going to connect and it would be a two-way thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, like if it was going to be like a meeting of hearts, I'd be down. And Ooh, I'm I sure love a meeting are. of hearts. Yeah, yeah. There, there oh, that's beautiful. There well, it kind of goes it. into the next question, which is, what are the songs you listen to when you're feeling down? And what are the songs that you go to when you need a dance break? We're compiling songs from the guests so that we can make a really fire playlist. Nice. Um, when I need a dance break, it's always Latin pop. It's like top tier mainstream Latin pop, basically J Balvin and Carol G. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just so good. Um, and if I'm feeling sad, who do I listen to? Do you feel sad? Do you ever get sad? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> Never. Oh my God, so much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm pretty boy in person, but yeah, you have my moments. What do I listen to? Licky Lee. Ooh. I Never okay. Learn. That's, that's a great heartbreak album if you're feeling that way. What a vibe. Um, Fiona Apple, I used to listen to a lot when I was sad. When I feel sad, in the car, Adam will play Fetch the Bolt Cutters and he'll play Drum Set or I Want You to Love Me, the first song on the new album. And I literally cry. In the beginning of Dude, COVID, because oh, it came really? out perfect, perfect, perfect timing. And I would play it in the yeah. shower and I would just like cry sing it. It was so good. Oh, God. That's what it's, it's for. Good. That's yeah. what good music is here for. Um, yeah, and who else? I mean, there's just so many people. I love Dolly Parton. Ooh, what's Natalia. your favorite Dolly Parton song? Oh, um, probably Jolene or Love is a Butterfly. Jolene is one of my favorite songs to karaoke. It's one of the best songs on earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just I think that's an ob objective fact. What does a perfect trip to Greece look like? Like, say you have 10 days in Greece. What do you do? Oh, I, um, I would spend three days in Athens. Um, probably at my dad's. And then seven days in Lefkas, which is the island that my dad's from. It's so chill there. It's kind of like, you know, it's very small population. Loads of countryside. Just like, oh, so good. What are you I doing can't... all day? Uh, what am I doing? I 
you'll have like a very lazy breakfast, probably get up at like nine and then you go to the beach around 11 o'clock. It's like incredible, like incredible turquoise seas. And then you probably stay there till three, four, go home, have a nap. And then in the evening, go out and meet some friends or family, depending on what kind of trip it is, who you've got with oh you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that sounds Super like exactly simple. what I need to do now. Oh That's like the God. dream is to go somewhere beautiful for a very simple vacation. Do you know what? I'm actually going to Mexico on my own for five days uh, the, the week after my album release. And I'm, I can't express to you how excited I am. I'm like... I was actually having to go for visa reasons, but then I made a little holiday out of it. And now I'm like, this was the smartest thing that I've planned in ages. I can't wait to see I just want to unplug. a photo from this. I want to like yeah, feel I'll, the I'll energy. I'll text it to you. Yes, please. <laughs> because I will channel it while I need this. Yeah. It'll be great. I'm very yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, looking forward to it. What mm. is your favorite Greek meal for comfort? It's pro- it's this um it's this lemon chicken soup called avro lemono and it's kind Stop. of like a Sunday special. Do you have a recipe? Yeah, I do, and they put feta in it as well. well. I put feta in it sometimes, but it's just it's so homely and it's just incredibly good for you as well. Oh my god, I need this right now, yeah. right now. <laughs> I I can't have grains or dairy or sugar for a while as I'm doing some healing stuff because I'm going through some health things and I'm looking for anything that's going to like fill me up and feel really good and that sounds perfect yeah yeah it's really good I'll t- I'll text you it and then you can have a I'm gonna try it thanks you. that's what I was trying to get I was trying to get you to offer to do that and then I did great <laughs> <laughs> what is a mm. mantra that keeps you going hmm I don't really have a mantra. I wish I did. Um, But I think recently I've just tried to remind myself it's very simple, but it's to take away anxiety that I have about big events. It's like you're going to try your best and that's all you can do. Mm, and it's I love so, that. It sounds kind of like it's it's a little bit boring and cliched, but it's kind of works for me for some reason. It just takes the edge off my anxiety because then you relinquish your your illusion of like control or mm. power over the event. And it's like, I'm going to go in there and do what I personally can do that day, particularly with what we're talking about, fatigue and stuff. And yeah. that's, all, that's all I can do. I have a similar one, which I try to give this advice to anybody who is worried about stage fright or anything like that. And it's really that nobody on the planet can talk about what you talk about, can do what you do, can sing the songs that you sing better than you can. And mm-hmm. you're the only one who can deliver this. So everybody in the crowd, they just want to hear you or want to learn from you and yeah. admire that. Yeah, actually, you know what? You've just inspired me. I, I, there is another little kind of motto that I have, particularly with this album. It's like, don't play it small. Like we're not here to play it small. We're here to unashamedly use our skills that we've been given and be ourselves. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's, it's hard to do, but it's totally possible for every single person. I think so many of us are used to like making ourselves small for the comfort of other people. So it's really important to know yes. that. And especially with so much loss in this last year as a great reminder, because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. And yeah. I think about it with things as trivial as wear your nice clothes every day. Yes. Because you're always waiting for a reason to wear them. Wear a gown to the grocery store. It's so fun. I love it. 
Yeah, I love it. Yeah, why is it all of the expensive clothes we buy just like sit in a wardrobe? Well, I'm literally <laughs> trying to go through that process now because Adam has a smaller wardrobe than I do, but it's a really nice wardrobe. And around the house during COVID, he would always wear like the nicest things and I would be in sweatpants and I'd feel really bad because I was like, what, what am I waiting for? I have all of these like amazing pieces of clothing. And to me, at least, I don't know for everybody else, but when I dress up the same way I would dress up for other people, for myself, I feel a lot better about myself. Like yeah, I'm more confident same, in the yeah. work that I'm doing. Like you're not going to see the whole outfit I'm wearing, but if I am wearing something that like makes me feel good, you naturally do better. It's psychological. Yeah, that's why clothes are so amazing. Like, you know, I'm not really a, um, I don't know, supporter of like the whole three seasons a year, fashion trends, whatever, but like fashion design and the power that clothes have to express different parts of yourself it's like it's still kind of amazing how different you feel it's just wild it's wild i love the quality over quantity thing because you don't need to have every single thing in the world like you can rotate when i travel if i'm traveling for three weeks i'll bring seven outfits and i'll just rotate oh, through them because that. i'm like i don't need to bring 21 different things to wear and also mixing and matching is so fun yeah i love that and also it's it comes down again to like what is your skill set? We're not here to like be models and to be on the runway every day of our lives, you know. Even though we may do some modeling occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my but gosh, it's so true. You know, it's like we're creative directors, actually. Yeah, and we're doing our best with our mixing and matching. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Do you write music that you listen to yourself? Like, do you listen to your own music, and is that part of why you make it? I I do a lot in the making or creating process, but afterwards, no, I don't. Really? You're not like, I'm gonna no. jam out to my new album? I mean, I will on release day, I'll like ride around in my car. <laughs> <laughs> Top down, blasting ancient dreams. That's, um, that's so iconic. Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't think there's a reason to afterwards, because part of the reason that I songwrite is to like, get things out, my, my subconscious talks to my conscious brain, and, you know, I get the message, take it in, and then I move on. So I guess I never thought about the continue. process part. Is your music yes. the type of music you would listen to? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because I've always yeah, wondered, I'm, like, do people make music that they listen to? I think some people do, but I don't think it's, it's a regular thing. Because when you're writing it, it's going through so many edits. Like, you know, I'll do a morning of writing, and then I'll go for a walk in whatever city I'm in listen to things and I'll know immediately that's the wrong lyric or like that melody doesn't work and I'll go back and then I'll fix it. So it's this constant editing process. Um, so by the end, you're just like, get it out. <laughs> Release the album. <laughs> Do you hate it by the end? No, no, I, I still love it. But it's just, I don't have an emotional list, uh, in, yeah. in, an emotional reason to listen to it anymore. But if you heard one of your songs in the grocery store in a restaurant, would you go and shrug your shoulders and dance with your shoulders? Would you do no, that? No, because I'm, I'm, I'm like, in those moments, I'm always um, embarrassed or concerned <laughs> that people will see me and then they'll hear my, <laughs> they'll see me in the grocery store and they'll also hear my song and they'll just find it too weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be like a live concert. It would be like it's this normal. Weird. It's like, yeah, yeah, oh my yeah. God, it's Marina and Prima Donna's playing. Like, this is just too insane. <laughs> I feel like it would be a very Marina thing to happen. 
Yeah, I'm always, oh God, it's always like I'm in like some mall in Germany and Prima Donna comes on. I just feel so conspicuous and embarrassed. Does anybody ever say anything? <laughs> no one's ever caught me in that exact moment, no. Well, see, it's all, it's all in, in her head, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, it is. It totally is. Okay, what new artists are you currently appreciating? There's a French artist called Oclou. It's, um, it's O-K-L-O-U and she just delivers like the most dreamy, I don't know, incredible pop. She's got a record called Galore out. And also Caroline uh, Polachek, Pang. I've been listening to that a lot in quarantine. Um, yeah, those, those two artists are like very representative of my music tastes actually. I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check them out and we'll add them to the playlist. Yeah. You have a song called Man's World on your new record. What does a woman's world look like to you? Mm. A woman's world looks like... Actually, when you say woman's world, you mean an equal world, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Because we don't want to take over, you know? <laughs> no, not at all. No, Why would yeah. we want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, just yeah, kind of. Okay, yeah. A, woman, a woman's world where everybody's equal would look like to me um, being much more in touch with our relationship to the planet. We would be choosing the planet and people over profit. Um, our governments would look entirely different. Our policies would look different because we'd be, put, be putting human rights first. That's the kind of world I want to live in. And that was Marina's presidential candidacy <laughs> campaign. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. I think it would be great. <laughs> and finally, what do you know for sure? Hmm. I know for sure that I am free. I feel free. And I know this for sure because I haven't felt free in the past. Hmm. When did you start to feel that way? Really about six to eight months ago. I just no realized way. that. Yeah, I just, I realized that I, I was very affected by other people's opinions, you know, whether that was my social circle, friends, family, whatever. And I now like live for myself and I realized I can't make other people happy. Like that's not my problem if people disagree with who I am or how I dress or how I present myself. Um, mm. that's not my shame to carry anymore. And I think I was always very affected by that growing up, pa you know, patriarchal stuff. Yeah. Societal stuff that, w that we all experience as men and women. Um, and now I've just reached a point where I'm prepared to sacrifice certain things or certain people for my own freedom, you know, in terms of my relationship with them. I think we mm -hmm. should all be accepting of the people that we love. And that's how I want to operate in my life. And that's how I live my life now. What else is one of your favorite things about being 35? Ooh, um, I think just self-confidence. Mm. Would you tell Marina of 2008 anything she should prepare for or think about? Mm. Wow. I would tell her a lot of things, but I, I would really want to instill in her that um, 
you know, the, the shame that I carried was not my own. I think it was so hard to separate at the time my feelings of being, you know, being wrong or being a bad person or not having worth were not my own. They were like impressed on me by somebody else who was in pain. And mm. well, and I think I would have honestly, I think I would have lived quite a different life in my 20s if I hadn't had that burden. But, you know, that's part of that's part of life growing. That was one of my lessons that I had to learn. And and now I, I can see how, you know, when I see other people who are free, I just celebrate that so much, it, especially people in who are in their 20s, because that was a period that was so difficult for me. And I'm like, mm. you know, don't live for anyone else, like live for yourself, even if that means risking certain relationships. That's going to benefit so many people to hear. And it's so amazing so. to talk to you at this point in your life. This is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Yeah, me too. It's been really good. Thank you so much for having me on, by the way. Oh, um, no, nothing. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for doing <laughs> yeah. this. And thank you for your new gift. And I guess I'll see you in Mexico. Yeah, come out, girl. <laughs> come join me. Not on your solo trip because that has obviously. No, not my no, not my solo no, trip. No, no. I'm not my... imposing, but on the tour, <laughs> I'll be there. Please do. I'll let you know if it gets booked. For more Marina, you can listen to her music anywhere you stream your music or download. Do you still download music? I don't know. Let me know. Check out her website, marinaofficial.co.uk and on Instagram at marinadiamondis. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, it is up on YouTube or Facebook, both slash nor. And to you, our listener, I want to thank you for your listen and support. I'd love to stay connected. Here are some ways I'm telling stories these days. You can text me if you are in the U.S. or Canada. Yes, it is me, not a bot. I also text you intentional daily questions of the day. My number is 301-246-8894. You can follow us on social, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube at Noor, and on Instagram at AYS. My Twitter, Snapchat, and Clubhouse is N. Tagori.